So last episode, I talked about the end of Israel's War of Independence in 1949 and its impact on both Jewish Israelis as well as Arab Israelis. Arab Israelis refer to the Arabs who stayed within the borders of Israel and became Israeli citizens. But there was another group of Arabs who found themselves outside of Israel's borders at the end of the war. Although there's not really an historic, ethnic, or social difference between them and Arab Israelis, we call these Arabs, the ones outside, the Palestinians, as that is the identity they've taken on for themselves. And they don't call the War of Independence the War of Independence. They call it the Nakba, Arabic for catastrophe. The fate of the Palestinian refugees from the Nakba is perhaps the most contentious issue in Israeli history and still relevant today. The return, or not, of these refugees is one of the central stumbling blocks in peace negotiations between the Israeli and Palestinian governments. This isn't just an argument over facts and figures with readily accepted statistics. This is primarily an argument about deeply held narratives and national identity. Powerful stories that have a vested political and moral interest in maintaining their righteousness and proving the other guy not just wrong, but morally irredeemable. Israel was forced into a war for its survival and won, at a cost of 1% of its population killed. One outcome was 720,000 Palestinian refugees, a tragic experience which traumatized generations of Palestinians. If you're looking for one right answer that neatly reconciles those two facts, you've come to the wrong place. By the end of this episode, you'll have a story, but you probably won't have moral clarity. I'm your host, Jason Harris, and welcome back to Jew Ought to Know. <laughs> I would say to young people that we can do everyone our share to redeem the world. We're looking at two big narratives here. One narrative goes that the Palestinians left of their own volition, either encouraged by Arab leaders or because they refused to live in a Jewish state. Israel actually encouraged them to stay on as full citizens, but most Palestinians chose not to, or were forced out by the Arab armies to make way for the invasion. To the extent that Israel may have expelled a few Palestinians here and there, it was only for military purposes. And anyway, the real problem with the Palestinian refugees is the Arab countries that refused to absorb them, instead keeping them destitute and angry to use as propaganda against Israel. The other end of the spectrum argues that Israel ethnically cleansed the Palestinians in a colonialist land grab resorting to war crimes and genocide to systematically eliminate the Arab population from the boundaries it illegally seized during the Nakba. This is the Israeli occupation, not just certain pieces of territory, but the entire area that used to be Palestine, and which is today known as Israel. This fact delegitimizes Israel from any moral right to exist, and therefore all of its land today rightfully belongs to the Palestinians, who have a right to return to their former lands. Of course, neither narrative is correct, but neither are they both totally wrong. Now, it's impossible to explore every nuance of these narratives here. Believe me, I tried with a half dozen rewrites of this episode. There are so many perspectives. But a good place to start is with the United Nations partition on November 29, 1947. The Palestinian exodus began even before Israel was established in May of 1948. 
started immediately after the partition vote in November of 1947, in which Palestine was divided into separate Jewish and Arab states. The Arabs promised a war of annihilation if partition was approved, and the Jews were determined to defend the territory they had been allotted. The result was a civil war between Palestine's Jews and Palestine's Arabs. Things got very bloody and very chaotic very quickly. For Palestinians, the partition vote thrust them into what the Palestinian writer and artist Jabra Ibrahim Jabra called a journey through the cosmically absurd. For ordinary Palestinians, they couldn't understand how and why European powers were allowed to simply decide that Palestine should be severed to make room for the Jews, and that they, the Palestinians, should somehow end up homeless and disenfranchised because of it. Of course, it wasn't that simple, as you know from having listened to season two here at Juwadano. I know some of you are behind. It's time to catch up. Just saying. The partition vote was a very long time coming, and the Jews might reasonably ask, well, where else are we supposed to go? So right from the beginning, based on the outcome of the War of Independence, or the Nakba, the catastrophe, you can see how these opposing narratives had completely different perspectives about what had happened. In any case, the Civil War led to the beginning of the Palestinian exodus, which was largely voluntary, if not willingly. What I mean is, imagine if a disaster was coming for your city and all the people in charge ran off. The mayor and the city council, the chiefs of police and the firefighters, the top business people, the major landowners. That might be a strong signal that you too should grab your family and go. When the leadership abandons ship, everyone else tends to also run for the lifeboats. And this, in essence, is how the Palestinian exodus began in 1947. In the wake of partition in the Civil War, Arab cities and communities collapsed politically and economically. So the Palestinians there left, seeking a safe place to go in Arab territory. In those instances, the Palestinians weren't expelled by Israel and they weren't propagandized to leave. In times of war, when things are dire, people who can leave often do so, even though, of course, they don't want to. Tens of thousands of Palestinians left this way during the Civil War. Okay, but the Palestinians will say that wasn't the main thing. The main thing was that the Jews were raining violence and mayhem down on them, forcing them to run for their lives. In that sense, they were forced out. And they're not wrong. This was a crucial part of the Jews' military strategy, again, even before Israel was officially declared. They didn't want to forcibly expel the Arabs, but they did want to scare them into leaving contested areas. The Haganah was the main Jewish militia, the Israeli army before the army was established. The Haganah was blasting Arab neighborhoods and towns with threats and dire warnings of imminent peril. It was psychological warfare to scare everyone into leaving without putting up a fight. It's good military strategy, since you don't have to risk soldiers encountering any resistance, and the Jews get to technically claim that they didn't force anyone out. They all left of their own volition. This strategy was particularly effective in mixed cities, such as Haifa and Jaffa, where Arab and Jewish forces staged constant attacks on each other, often with Palestinian and Jewish civilians caught in the middle. So, yes, tens of thousands of Palestinians were driven out by Jewish and later Israeli propaganda that encouraged them to leave. Well, wait a second, says Israel. It wasn't just the Jews who were causing the Palestinians to leave. It was also coming from the Arab leaders. 
At the beginning of the Civil War, the Arabs didn't want to lose any ground to the Jews, so they urged Palestinian civilians to stay in their homes. But as the Civil War dragged on into 1948, still before Israel was established, their thinking changed. Especially where Arab villages were close to Jewish settlements, Arab military forces called for those towns to evacuate so they could be used as forward operating bases to attack the Jews. The promise was that the Palestinians would return once the Jews were defeated. And also, says Israel, there was plenty of psychological warfare coming from the Arabs against the Palestinians as well. If they couldn't defeat the Jews, then for sure they weren't going to hand them a political and moral victory by allowing Arab civilians to remain under Jewish rule. So to convince civilians to leave, and to make the Jews look bad in the court of public opinion, the Arabs propagandized Jewish brutality to make it sound like the Jews were nothing but a marooning band of Zionist child killers. It's certainly true that the Jews did commit atrocities, but in far less instances than what Arab propaganda had people believing. The Arabs had promised a war of annihilation against the Jews, so they propagandized that the Jews were doing the same thing. It wasn't true, but it's not surprising that so many people believed it and fled their homes before the Jews could get there. It's true that in many places the Jews encouraged the Palestinians to stay, and the Arab leadership insisted they leave. As the historian Howard Sacker writes, the Arabs would not live for a single day under Jewish rule. But let's be honest, it wasn't entirely for altruistic reasons. David Ben-Gurion knew that the Jews needed to seize and preserve the moral upper hand if they were to continue to command global sympathy and support, even though the Arabs were promising a war of annihilation and the Jews were not. The Jews didn't want to be seen as forcing the Arabs out. And while the Jews weren't going to be too bent out of shape if the Arabs did leave, most of those Arabs didn't pose much of a threat in the long run. It's also less true that Arab forces frequently evacuated Arab villages to use them as bases to attack Jewish settlements. This is a key part of the Israeli narrative, that it was the Arabs themselves who ordered the abandonment of Arab villages. And while this did indeed happen in some places, it doesn't seem to account for more than a small percentage of the total number of Palestinians who fled. But still, it did occasionally happen. In other words, ordinary Arab civilians were getting terrorized from all sides. The Palestinian political scientist Mohammed Halaj, who was 16 at the time of the exodus, writes that, like Palestinians everywhere, the people at first refused to believe what was happening to them. People who became refugees believed that within weeks the fighting would end and they would return to their homes and their land. War always creates refugees, and refugees always go home after the war. Why should it be any different for us? Palestinians tended to think of the ordeal as a nightmare from which they expected to wake up soon. The Jews hoped to scare the Palestinians into leaving to grab strategic territory without having to fight for it. The Arabs hoped to scare them into leaving to make the Jews look bad. By the time Israel was declared on May 14, 1948, some 200,000 Palestinians had fled Jewish-controlled territory in Palestine. This process continued throughout 1948. Palestinians left voluntarily, or they were pushed out by both Arab and Israeli propaganda that scared them into leaving before military forces arrived. But again, the Palestinians will tell you that wasn't the main thing. 
The main thing was that the Israeli army invaded their towns and forcibly expelled them. The most glaring example was the Battle for Lydda that I talked about a few episodes ago, in which Ben-Gurion ordered and Yitzhak Rabin carried out a mass expulsion of tens of thousands of Arabs. A similar expulsion took place in the nearby city of Ramleh. Both cities were strategic choke points along the all-important road to Jerusalem, which was must-have territory for Israel. Along this road lay tons of small Arab villages, and it was here during the first couple months of fighting that most of the Palestinian expulsions took place. Of course, from Israel's standpoint, this was war, and these were hostile villages from which Arab forces launched attacks. It was a strategic necessity that the army clear everyone out to ensure that Arab forces couldn't continue to use them as bases. This sometimes included raising them to the ground, destroying homes and buildings so that they couldn't be used by the enemy, which meant, of course, that those civilians would never be allowed back because there was now nothing to come back to. And there were instances of massacres by Jewish and then Israeli forces as they took some of these towns. They were very few in number, but even one is an atrocity. The most infamous took place at the Palestinian village of Deir Yassin, next to Jerusalem, in April of 1948, which I talked about in Season 2. But it wasn't the only one, though there weren't as many as Palestinians tend to claim. But still, even just a few massacres of a few dozen civilians caused tens of thousands to flee in fear. So again, it's that psychological component of the war. Maybe Israel didn't forcibly expel the Palestinians in these instances, but they certainly did a lot to push them out. On the other hand, it is the case that, generally speaking, Israel did not attack Arab villages that didn't attack them first. Abu Ghosh, an Arab town along the road to Jerusalem, is the prime example here. Its leadership decided early on not to attack the Jews along the road, no to align with their neighboring Arab villages. The IDF never attacked the village, and while most everyone left during the war, they came back afterwards and settled right back into their homes and businesses. The city of Nazareth is another example. Yes, that Nazareth, of which Jesus is associated. So funny story, I was there on Christmas once. Okay, actually, that's the end of the story. There wasn't really much going on there, to be honest. Anyway, Nazareth was then, and still is today, a major Arab town. And although it was a big city back then, it wasn't a major battlefront, since it was located pretty well into the interior of Palestine. The town put up very little resistance, and when the IDF began attacking it, the city quickly surrendered, on the condition that no harm come to its residents. Although there was a brief attempt by the IDF commander to expel the Arabs, Ben-Gurion stopped him. Again, it goes back to preserving that moral high ground and world opinion. So not only was Nazareth not overrun and its residents not expelled, but it became a destination for many Palestinian refugees, and is today the largest Arab city in Israel. What I'm leaving out here is two things, really. One is plenty more examples of all these claims I'm making. Which I have, I just had to edit them out because this episode's length was really getting out of control. My point here isn't to excuse Israel's behavior or minimize the terrible impact on the Palestinians, what I'm trying to do is provide a brief overview of what happened and why. The second thing I'm leaving out is a greater emphasis on the individual, collective, and traumatic experiences of the Palestinian civilians, who, for whatever reason, had to leave their homes of generations. 
Sari Hanafi, a Palestinian professor of sociology at the American University of Beirut, wrote about his father's experience leaving Haifa at the age of 20. My father's solemn voice started to shake when he spoke about what he had seen on his way north from Haifa to Lebanon, being spotted by an armored vehicle that opened fire on him. He talked bitterly about his shame at the weakness of the Palestinians and their betrayal by Arab bystanders. My father, who loved poetry and spoke eloquent, spontaneous Arabic, suddenly became speechless, searching for words to express the experiences of the final months before fleeing to Lebanon. Their tragedy was compounded by the fact that the Arab countries to which they fled, by and large, didn't integrate them. As the historian Howard Sacker writes, the Palestinian refugees served Israel's short-term interest and the Arabs' long-term one. In the short term, emptying their territory of most of the Palestinians meant that Israel didn't have to worry too much about subversion or managing a hostile population. There was benefit, too, in dumping hundreds of thousands of destitute civilians on the neighboring Arab countries, tying up the road and rail networks and hurting their economies, both of which made it harder to wage war against Israel. But in the long term, for the Arab countries, the Palestinians were used as propaganda against Israel, kept purposefully poor and miserable to direct the world's attention on their plight in a way that enabled the Arabs, humiliated having lost the war, to blame Israel for everything. Generations of Palestinians were kept in refugee ghettos, blighted urban neighborhoods from which it was impossible to escape poverty and humiliation. In the wake of the Nakba, the catastrophe, the United Nations stepped in to try to help the Palestinians. The United Nations Relief and Works Agency was created in 1949 to care for both Palestinian and Jewish refugees inside Israel, as well as those Palestinians who fled. But in the early 1950s, Israel assumed total responsibility for the Jewish refugees, which I'll get to next episode. So UNRWA, as it was called, became dedicated solely to the Palestinians. And here's where it gets interesting, because who is a Palestinian refugee? Well, under international law, if I flee a war zone and I come to, let's say, the United States, I'm a refugee. If I flee with my wife and children, they too are refugees because we're all coming out of this war zone. But if I come to America as a single refugee and then later on marry an American woman, she does not become a refugee, nor would our children. My own grandparents were Holocaust refugees from Poland, but neither I nor my parents are refugees under international law because we are fully American citizens. And that's true for every group around the world, with the exception of the Palestinians. The United Nations holds the definition of a Palestinian refugee as any patrilineal descendant of a Palestinian who left from 1947 to 1949. So if I fled Palestine, moved to Jordan, and my children and grandchildren were then born in Jordan and grew up there, they are still considered Palestinian refugees. Around 720,000 Palestinians became refugees from 1947 to 1949. Of them, maybe 50 or 60,000 are still alive today, but their descendants number around 5 million, all of whom are considered refugees. You can see how this raises a huge problem in the context of what the Palestinians consider to be the right of return. That is, Palestinians who left what became Israel ought to have a right to return to their home and reclaim that property. This isn't a new issue. It became a matter of contention before the war was even over. Although Israel made an effort to encourage the Palestinians to stay and partake in the state, once the exodus began and the war ratcheted up, Ben-Gurion was no longer in the mood. 
It was too big of a risk to let in what could be a hostile population, and he wanted their abandoned territory to settle the Jewish refugees that were coming in from the Arab states. This is where the accusations of ethnic cleansing and colonialist land-grabbing come in, questioning the notion of Israel's right to exist. But for Israel, it was a matter of needing that territory for the Jews who were getting kicked out of Arab countries in similar numbers to the Palestinians leaving Israel, as well as for security. As for the return of the Arabs, he said, not only can I not accept the opinion of encouraging their return, but I think that one should prevent their return. War is war, and those who declared war upon us will have to bear the consequences after they have been defeated. It's hard to say how many Palestinian refugees resulted from what they called the Nakba, the United Nations puts the number at around 720,000, or about 85% of the pre-war Arab population. About a third of them stayed within Palestine, in the part captured by Jordan, known as the West Bank, which Israel didn't capture until 1967. Perhaps another 50 or 60,000 went to Jordan itself. Maybe 180,000 or so ended up in the Gaza Strip, which again, Israel didn't capture until 67. It belonged to Egypt. And most of the rest went to Syria and Lebanon, with some going to Iraq and the main part of Egypt. Which raises another interesting contextual point. The post-war era was a time of enormous global upheaval. As empires collapsed, their colonies achieved independence, and great masses of people were moved from one side of a border to another. In 1947, the British colony of India was partitioned into two separate countries, India and Pakistan a process that led to a religious-based population transfer for some 10 to 12 million people, and mass violence that claimed the lives of as many as 2 million people. Muslims and Hindus slaughtered each other, yet no one today suggests that neither of those two countries should exist on that basis. In Europe, tens of millions of Germans, Hungarians, Poles, Russians, Austrians, Romanians, Czechs, and many others were moved about as borders shifted, but there has been no international recognition of their right to return to their former countries, let alone that their descendants should inherit their refugee status. East Asia and Africa all experienced bloody battles over boundaries and territories. All of which might not matter, since we may simply want to judge Israel's actions on their own merits. But part of Israel's frustration, which has impacted its own narrative about the Palestinian exodus, is the notion that the Palestinian refugees received disproportionate attention from the world as part of an effort to discredit and delegitimize Israel far beyond any other country. Although the Palestinian refugees represented just a tiny fraction of the world's refugees at that point, and although Israel behaved as well as, or in some cases better than, many other countries dealing with similar crises, it alone has been condemned as a racist and colonialist monstrosity unworthy of existence. Finally, I always like to pose the question, well, what should Israel have done in this situation? Besides the obvious, that wartime atrocities are always tragic and should never happen, it's hard to accept the standard that Israel should have never let the Palestinians leave. It can't be said enough. The Arabs had declared a war of complete annihilation. To say that Israel should have left the Palestinians where they were is asking a country fighting for its life to take a risk so enormous that I can't think of another country that would have made a different decision. The Palestinians are right. It was a Nakba for them, a catastrophe. It was made doubly so by the refusal of the Arab countries to accept them, and by the world that continues to this day to use them as a propaganda tool against Israel. 
You can't blame them for hating Israel and for feeling betrayed by their fellow Arabs in the Middle East. Everyone in this story has their narrative, often informed by intensely tragic and personal experiences. If you're looking for straight truth, I don't think you're going to find it. It took nearly a half dozen rewrites to get this episode down, and even then I had to call it quits and finally just record what I had. I really struggled with how much I was leaving out and the way that I was telling the story. What I'm going for here is a decent overview of the competing narratives of the Palestinian exodus, the Nakba, the catastrophe. As I said at the beginning, there's the historical story, though much disputed, and then there is moral clarity, which is far from achieved. At the end of the day, we can surely say that Israel bears responsibility for the plight of the Palestinian refugees. But we can't say of what percentage that responsibility is. It isn't 100%. It might not even be 80, or it might be closer to 50. For if the Arabs hadn't insisted on the war as a triumph of annihilation, the Jews might not have been so scared of the Arabs in their midst, and might anyway have not have been able, in the glare of the public spotlight, to push out so many of them. And had the Arab nations accepted their co-religionists into their societies in the way that Israel did with the Jews from Arab countries, we might today have avoided decades of hatred and spite and victimization in a way that most other countries managed to do. Although the Palestinian refugees remain a hot-button issue, very little recognition is given to the fact that the Palestinians weren't the only ones pushed out of their homes. The Jews were too. As punishment for the creation of Israel, nearly one million Jews were pushed out of countries throughout the Middle East and North Africa, decimating communities that had existed in some places for more than 2,000 years. The majority fled to Israel, which struggled to accept, house, and integrate these Middle Eastern Jews in an effort that utterly changed the face of the country. You've been listening to Palestinian musicians today, Musin Subi, Amal Merkis, Sabrin, and Reem Kilani, Today was the Palestinian refugees, next time, the Jewish refugees. Thanks for listening. Talk to you next time. Lehitraot. See you later.